So this past June, Michaela and I had the privilege of traveling to Penang, Malaysia, to oversee a team program for stu students living in different parts of the world. I thank our elders, our ministry team, our youth leaders, our friends for freeing us for almost two weeks to experience this trip. As one does when flying internationally from Ontario, your first stop is usually YYZ, Toronto Pearson International Airport. And at the time, we thought it would be a good idea to arrive seven hours early for our flight and check in after hearing horror stories of airport disorganization. And after a half, a, an hour and a half of check-in, a flyby through security, and constant questions about our boarding pass, we were free to stroll to our gate. Now, if you're like us, and you haven't traveled for internationally for a while, this is what greets you as you stroll through to your gate. iPads on iPads on iPads everywhere. These iPads are a gateway to two main options. It'll say right on the screen, eat or play. You can do both at the same time. Play and eat, eat and play iPads on iPads, and before COVID made our lives more digitalized and tech-savvy, Pearson is ahead in offering you, the traveler, an iPad for your leisure and satisfaction. As one Reddit post jokingly said, finally, we don't have to interact with any other human being ever again. <laughs> and they're not entirely wrong. You can go through your whole airport and flight ex experience without ever having a meaningful connection with someone. You can check in at the machines. You can get your boarding pass at the machines. You drop off your luggage at the conveyor belt. You show your boarding pass real quick through security, and you can eat and play at these iPads. And of course, there's that small, tiny TV in front of you on the plane because it is now a right to be entertained on the plane. But is that what we want? Is that what we need? Do we really want a world where we can go through the whole thing without a meaningful connection, not being recognized, known, or loved? In his new book, The Life We're Looking For, Andy Crouch, who's a partner of theology and culture of praxis, begins with these words. Recognition is the first human quest. He goes on to explain that after an ordinary delivery of a baby, after the first few cries, newborn infants typically spend an hour or so in the stage doctors call quiet alert. Though the baby can only focus eight to 12 inches away, their eyes are wide open. They're looking for a face. And when they find one, especially a face that's looking back at them, they fix their eyes on it, seeing what they are most urgently looking for, what we are all looking for, to be recognized. Sadly, as much as we hate to admit it, the other has now become a boredom to avoid. The other has now become a danger to keep out. Wait, what, what, what'd you say? No, I'm sorry, I'm too busy looking on my phone. There's too many updates. But rather than seeing others who recognize us, we see the back of their phones that have identified them through facial recognition. If you ask Brene Brown, a vulnerability researcher, storyteller, what, about the life that we're looking for, she would say this, connection is why we're here. 
It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. This is what it's all about, connection. The ability to feel connected is how we're wired. It's why we are here. But for the last century, we've displaced that need to connect with the ease of technology. Andy Crouch continues to write that we've dreamed of mastery without relationship, what technology promises us, an abundance without dependence, what the crowds who Jesus fed with bread were looking for. Yet even before pandemic disrupted our quest to recognize or to connect, we felt threatened and strangely out of place, lonely, anxious, and just bored amid infinite connections. Because we have separated power from relationships, abundance from dependence, and being from personhood, we live on a lonely planet. Physicians see this. Vivek Murthy, Surgeon General of the United States, wrote in 2017 that during his time, it wasn't heart disease or diabetes that was the most common cause of diseases. It was actually loneliness. Physicians see it. Ben Sass, a Harvard-trained historian, in 2018 argues that the root of polarization and conflict in our time is loneliness. Prime Minister Theresa May of the United Kingdom appointed a cabinet minister for loneliness in 2018, and it costs $6.7 billion annually to offset objective social isolation, which is a fancy word for loneliness. Is it a coincidence or grand irony that loneliness has spiked just as our media became social, our technology became more personalized, and our machines learned to recognize our faces? Crouch argues that this is no coincidence. He says that there is a consistent shadow side of the bright promises and genuine achievements of the technological world. It has been based all along on the false understanding of what human beings really are and what we most need. We thought we were looking for impersonal power, which doesn't need anyone to be effective, and now we have it. The smartphone, as one tech article suggests, already has given us the opportunity to fly through space. Maps, video conferencing. You can travel through time, photos, social networks, and you can increase your intelligence, omnipresent internet access. Right, Rogers? <laughs> we think we want power without a relationship, an abundance without dependence, and freedom without limits. And this has led us to a lonely, anxious, and boring planet. But we need a power that is personable and personal, meaningful connections marked by dependence, recognizing, seeing, and loving. So this morning, if you have your Bibles, please turn to John 6. So we're going to begin in the Gospel of John, chapter 6. And if you, got, you forgot your Bible, you're not familiar with the Scriptures, there's actually one in front of you, the blue one, either under the seats or in front of the pews in the, in the balcony. And John 6 is on page 755. John 6, page 755. If you're listening online and you're at home and you forgot your Bible at home, I don't know, I don't know what to tell you. But 
John 6, beginning in verse 16, page 755. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. The sentence begs the question, what happened in the morning, on land, before they got into the boat? And if you missed Pastor Jamie's sermon from last week, we learned that Jesus demonstrated himself as Messiah by miraculously using five loaves and two fish to feed a great multitude. We saw how Jesus could bring plenty out of our own scarcity. And after the disciples experience all this, they go down to the sea. While we tend to think of the sea as a source of pleasure and a good place for a vacation, the ancient Israelites had a very different view of it. They understood that all, all for the sea's wonder and beauty, it is also an unrivaled source of destruction. On December 26, 2004, the sea caused one of the deadliest natural disasters in history. A massive earthquake under the sea of West Sumatra triggered a tsunami that is 100 feet high swept across 14 countries, killing almost a quarter million people. The massive power and unpredictability of the sea is why ancient people saw it as a symbol of evil. The inhabitants of Israel, who were not seafaring people, viewed the ocean as a realm of chaos, destruction, and darkness. Rather than a delightful place for recreation, to them, the sea was a dark abyss to be feared. In their literature, including the biblical narrative, the sea became a metaphor for the forces of evil and disorder that opposed their God of order. To make matters worse, also in verse 17, it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. Like the opening words of the Hebrew Bible, our passage depicts a chaotic, dark, churning abyss. And as the darkness descended, did the disciples recall these themes? Did they remember that vision of the sea as a realm of darkness and destruction, one carried through the flood story in Genesis, a common theme in biblical poetry, and it's all over the writings and the prophets. The sea is a realm of disorder. An evil, chaotic, dark world in just two verses. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Darkness, night, these are always symbols for the God-forsakenness of the world and for the lostness of men and women. In the darkness, we see nothing and no longer know who we are. For much of history, darkness is simply terrifying. Just imagine a world without electric light, a world that's lit dimly by a torch or a candle, a world full of shadows with unseen terrors, a world which no one could be called on when a thief broke in or during an emergency, a world without light where animals hid in darkness, where demons, ghosts, and other night creatures were lingering. Sure, now with a flick of a switch, we can see as well as we were in the daylight, but if you took the time to go out into the woods, maybe go camping far from civilization, we still feel the sense of danger and helplessness that nighttime brings. The night is not just hours on the clock, it's a reality that our bodies experience each night 
reminding us that we are exposed, that we cannot control our lives, and one day we will die. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come. For some of you this morning, it has been dark for a while, and Jesus feels like he still hasn't come. Verse 18, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Tish Harrison Warren, a priest in the Anglican church, knows what it's like to face darkness and rough seas. After moving from Texas to Pittsburgh in early January, her father died, and a month later she miscarried and hemorrhaged. A following month she was out, she was found out that she was pregnant again, and then the bleeding came, the pregnancy became complicated, and doctors placed her on medically restricted activity, which darkened her mind for hours. The bleeding was constant for two months, and in the end, in late July, in the second trimester, she lost a baby son. And as she writes of this time, I didn't know how to approach God anymore. There were too many things to say, too many questions without answers. My depth of pain overshadowed my ability with words. And more painfully, I couldn't pray because I wasn't sure how to trust God. Martin Luther wrote about these seasons. When any naive confidence in the goodness of God withers, he called it the left hand of God. It's when God becomes foreign, he becomes perplexing, he becomes terrifying. So it's dark, you're on the sea, the sea becomes rough, Jesus has not yet come, and you keep rowing. Verse 19, they had rowed three or four miles in the darkness, in the sea, when it's rough, Jesus not there, they keep rowing. If the sea becoming rough are those seasons of deep suffering, those who keep rowing through the roughness are those who walk through prolonged, even lifelong anguish. When we experience suffering that does not cease, we sometimes feel locked in a soundproof room. We kick and pound against the walls to escape, but all our efforts to stop the experience of suffering leaves us with bruises and disappointments. We don't find rescue and relief. Our cries ricochet off the walls, making us question whether God or anyone else hears us. Feeling abandoned in cloudy circumstances that seem to stretch on forever it's almost hard to bear. So in resentment, in defeat, in, exha in exhaustion, we stop crying and then we start numbing. So we cue on the next Netflix show, we pour that next glass of wine, we numb, we pretend, we ignore the pain because it's just too incapacitating to face our lives. And in that pain, deeper still, we fear being cut off from God's love. When all the hard things stay in our lives instead of fading into the past, we repeatedly experience what Christians have called the dark night of the soul. God seems distant and our fate a pile of broken pieces. We wonder if God has abandoned us. Is he punishing us? 
The night is darkest just before the dawn. Verse 19. When they had rode about four or three miles, or three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Jesus brings fear. Why? Because it's not enough to know that the God-man, Jesus, is more powerful than the sea and darkness. Impersonal power is not what we need. It's not enough to see the same spirit on Jesus that hovers over the dark abyss at creation to draw order from the chaos. I'm sure the disciples heard that echo of Yahweh who rescues his people from slavery by parting the sea. They may escape Egypt on dry ground. The message of scripture is clear. The forces of evil are genuinely terrible. And the Lord is far greater. But that is not enough. We do not want someone who is only great, but also good. Yes, their rabbi had authority over nature, which they saw with the leftovers of five barley loaves and two fish. But as Jesus walks on the sea, he proves to have authority over the forces of evil, chaos, and destruction. And the only one with such power was Yahweh himself, the creator who calmed the dark seas of creation and rescues his people through the flood, and the disciples were terrified. They were terrified of this power. Power without a relationship is one of our greatest fears. Power without a relationship is our cultural moment's most profound wrong. Every technological advancement that eliminates relationships with others hints at this fear. Sure, it's cushioned by an ever more personalized smartphone, face recognition, and AI, but God did not create us to flourish amongst impersonal power. From the sexual misconduct of the SBC to Larry Nasser, we see where power without relationship brings us. Chaos, destruction, ruin. And Jesus knows this. In the words of Tolkien, here comes the you catastrophe the unexpected appearance of goodness, the, study ha- the sudden happy turn in a story, Jesus who pierces us with joy and a glimpse of truth, a sudden relief. Verse 20, and he said to them, Jesus said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus is the perfect, personable power who we experience through a relationship. Jesus steps into our chaos with kindness. He redeems our destructive ways with his delight. He renews what we have ruined with his relationship. No, it's not enough to see that Jesus walks on the waters in great power. Jesus must walk with us in goodness, in the chaos of life. Jesus must walk with me because that is who he is. He is both strong and kind. And this is the Jesus we must receive. Verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. 
not afraid, but glad. Now they see Jesus, a king who walks high above the chaotic waters and enters our doubts, enters our frailty, enters the darkness that we experience in life. And immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. Notice these similar accounts from Matthew and Mark. So this is what Matthew writes in his gospel, right after the feeding of the 5,000. He writes, when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him. Similar account in Mark. He climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down, and they were completely amazed. Notice the difference in the Gospel of John. They were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. There is no mention in the Gospel of John of the rough seas and the strong winds stopping. Jesus just gets into the boat, and then they go to where they were going. So the disciples go down to the sea, darkness descends, the sea and the waves become rough, and it takes a little longer for Jesus to come. When Jesus does come, he comforts our fear with his presence. But in the account of John, Jesus' power is not primarily seen as he silences the winds and the waves. His power in the Gospel of John is seen in his presence during the darkness, chaos, and evil, not just deliverance from them. So Jesus said to them, he says to us, it is I, do not be afraid. We crave, we long for the presence of God, not only his deliverance during times of doubt, times of suffering, times of hardships and darkness. And this is where heaven must meet earth in Jesus, his presence during our pain, not just after it. Jesus' presence during our pain. Joseph experienced this presence. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison and the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. The three teenagers in the book of Daniel anticipated this presence to the awe of the king. Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth one looks like the son of the gods. Elijah was surprised to hear this presence while he was doubting. There he went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? The apostle Paul felt this presence. At my first offense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. Jesus is present with his followers in the dark pit of the sea. Jesus is present with his followers in the dark pit of prisons and dire circumstances. Jesus is present in all goodness and power. 
he is present and you felt him present when a loved one passed away with, to a place with no more tears. He has been present in the sadness that is too heavy to bear. Jesus is present in the confusing moments where words just will not reach, where the suffering is too terrible to name. The Lord is present. And right now, in this moment, he waits at the edge of the town, tenderly, patiently, waiting for you to come home. So come home to Jesus. He is strong and kind. You do not want unkind power that hurts. You need a compassionate strength that heals. When it's dark and evil seems to rise, the Lord seemingly has not come, and you have to keep rowing. We all long for a God who notices our suffering, cares enough to act, and will make all things new. It's an ache that cannot be shaken, which we all share deep into our bones and carry with us every day and every night. Francis Spufford, author and teacher, he writes this, we don't have an argument that solves the problem of the cruel world, but we have a story. Christianity does not give us a concise and neat explanation for vulnerability, loss, or pain. It takes us the whole story of redemptive history to shape our questions about God's presence in the darkness. And part of this story is that if we want to see what God is like, we look to Jesus, a man acquainted with sorrow, no stranger to grief or pain. He's a peasant craftsman who knew suffering. He died as a criminal and he was mostly alone. Mysteriously, God does not take away our vulnerability. He enters into it. Jesus, in whom heaven and earth meet, fully God and fully man, enters our vulnerability. Jesus left a place where there is no night to enter our darkness. He was met with blisters and indigestion, fractured relationships, and the death of friends. An oppressive empire, the indignity of poverty, the terror of violence. Jesus met all these. One night he sweated blood, asking the Father to spare him from agony, weeping in the lonely darkness while his friends fell asleep. Jesus descended to the dead, came back to life, ascended to God, all for you and for me. All so that he can offer us this hope. That he will not leave us alone. That he will keep close to us during the darkness, in the doubts, in fear, in vulnerability. Jesus keeps close to us. He does not promise to keep bad things from happening. He does not promise that night will not come. He does not promise that it won't be terrifying or that he'll immediately tug us to shore. No, he promises that we will not be left alone when the hardships, when the doubts descends. He will be there. He will keep watch with us in the night. Tesh Harrison Warren writes, when we're drowning, we need a lifeline, and our lifeline in grief cannot be mere optimism that maybe our circumstances will improve because we know that may not be true. 
We need practices that don't simply ease our fears or pain, but teach us to walk with God in the crucible of our own fragility. We need those practices. So is there a practice from the way of Jesus that unites us to him, whose power is seen in his invitation to a relationship by binding us to a force not to be afraid of, but the one that we need? Is there a practice that guides us to walk with God in the night? A practice that helps us in the crucible of our fragility. So I can think of two practices in the way of Jesus. I'll share one, and you'll have to ask me later about the other one. Okay, so here's the first one. The practice of community unites us to Jesus as he guides us to walk in the night. The practice of community unites us to Jesus as he guides us to walk in the night. How? Mainly, I would say, through the stories of others. Jesus guides us to walk in the night through the story of others. K.J. Ramsey, a professional counselor, writer, and recovering idealist writes, no one can weave their story into the story of God making all things new without others witnessing their story and remembering it as a true part of something bigger. No one can experience the shattered pieces of their life becoming essential parts of a mosaic of grace and glory without others naming the colors, applying adhesive, and envisioning the larger picture God is forming. So I've invited our friend Amy to come up. I've asked Amy to share her story. We're gonna try this practice, and I hope that you hear those pieces that she needs you, we need to be put together. It's her story of Jesus' presence in her pain. Thanks, Amy. It should be hot. Hello? Okay. Um, just a warning. I do talk with my hands, and I do talk fast, so bear with me. Um, but uh, this is my story. Uh, it's been very, very hard um, since 2019. Um, I came to believe in Jesus and truly accepted him into my life when I was 17 years old. So that was back in 2017. Um, things were going well. My family was getting closer and closer to him. Uh, around the time we started attending church, my mom's cancer came back. Uh, we were taught extremely harmful things, um, things that back then we thought were right. Uh, we dove right into the name and claim it prosperity gospel along with the rest of the church. Uh, lots of the members prophesying and claiming things in the name of God that would somehow promise physical healing if we did all the right things as a Christian. But then my mom died in an extremely traumatic way. Uh, in that moment, the, thought, the God we thought we knew that we came to believe died along with her. But that wasn't him. In the midst of it, I felt God's presence in a way I can't explain. I kept praying for him to sustain my faith. I felt his immense goodness and sovereignty and holiness. Right after that happened, uh, three weeks after my mom died, I moved to Hamilton. Uh, I was now alone with my grief, facing the harsh reality of life. 
Somehow God was pushing me along, uh, introduced me to a family of believers that I could trust, that would take me in with hospitality and love that I've never seen before. I spent one and a half years trying to recover from the spiritual abuse and grief and intensive therapy and an amazing community. The suffering didn't end, a great humbling reminder of the reality of this sinful, broken world. As I was working through my grief from my mother's death, one of my best friends was killed. Along with that came a sense of guilt, more trauma, and more questions that I still haven't gotten to with God. It seemed as if when I was just starting to build back up, I was shattered again. But a vivid image that came into my mind was a thousand pieces of myself held up by a net safely with no piece left behind. I knew I was suffering, but God coded it with his love as he does and something else I can't put into words. I was, it's now been three years since my mother passed and one and a half years since my best friend passed. In fact, in about nine days, it'll be three years for my mom. Um, I'm still working through very painful memories, false beliefs, trust issues, and more, but in this dark place right now, I know, that, I know and pray that God sustains me and I have faith that he is very much present and in this place with me. I feel heard and understood knowing Jesus experienced it all, and I know I have a greater hope where there will be no more tears, heartache, evil, and suffering. And just the one thing I have to recommend to the church is to be present with those who do grieve and to not make death such a taboo topic. Um, it's not our words that will save them and get them out of their grief and hole of despair, it's just simply sitting with them. And that's what I noticed was best for our family that some didn't do and some did do, some that I had only met and known for three months that somehow took me in, prayed for me, um, and I was just amazed at how good God was through that. Um, I was actually very close to ending things and I just told God, I'm done trying. Um, if you want me to keep going, you'll have to do the work, I'm not doing anything. And somehow, within less than 24 hours, all those friends that I ended up making um, went into a basement and they all prayed for me, something that I just found out. Um, people came to my rescue and um, with great hospitality, I stayed with them and they listened to me. And again, it wasn't their words that helped me, it was just simply the idea of how strong a community can be when it's based uh, in Christ. And that's just something that I hope I can offer to people with the experience that I've gone through and um, that we can all learn from this. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. And you just put it back there. <clears throat> no one can experience the shattered pieces of their life becoming essential parts of a mosaic of grace and glory without others, without you, naming the colors, applying adhesive, and envisioning the larger picture God is forming. We simply can't always remember on our own that Jesus holds our lives in a bigger story. We all forget from time to time and need each other to tell our stories. Sometimes, as Andrew Peterson writes, a story is the only way back from the darkness. I need you to have faith when mine is fragile, and we should never shame faithlessness and doubt. 
They should remind us that we are all part of a body, a family, a household that needs every part to remember, breathe, and walk in the rhythms of grace. So who is holding your story with you? Whose hands are you inviting gently to touch the wounded pieces of your life? Whom will you trust to see you so fully, so consistently, that they can see that faith at the core of who you are and remind you of it when your eyes only see darkness? Henry Nouwen writes, one significant way to befriend our sorrow is to take it out of its isolation and share it with someone who can receive it. You are worth being known, no matter how exhausted, defeated, or disappointed, suffering, and the hardships of life have made you feel. There is a risk in being recognized, understood, connected, and loved. And at times it won't seem like it's worth the effort. But I pray that you would find your community who listens, your small group who loves, and may that love make space for hope. In the end, darkness, evil, it's not explained. It is defeated. The night is not justified or solved. It is endured until the light overcomes it, and it is no more. An eternal day is coming with no more night. The sea of evil dried up, and we won't need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun. And Jesus will be our light. And all who come to Jesus will be with him in his gentle reign. Amen. One of my, one of my professors in school once said that the people don't hum the sermon out of the service. They hum the songs. So thank you, worship team. Thank you, Amy, for sharing your story. Just a reminder that the offices are closed tomorrow. May the Lord Christ be with you, his presence, his power, his kindness, wherever he leads you, wherever he guides you, through the storms, through the darkness, through the day, he will not leave you alone. So may he bring you back rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing through his doors. Amen.